My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to dive into God's Word. You know, when they, when they teach you how to preach, they tell you, you know, it's good to start with a story or an anecdote or a funny joke to, to draw people in and to, you know, engage them. It's kind of like, you know, starting off with a, a light salad or a soup or a tasty beverage before you get into the main course. But, you know, sometimes when you're staring at a big chunk of meat, you kind of just have to shove everything else out of the way and dive right in. And that's what we're going to do this morning. This passage is so meaty and delicious that we're just going to kind of shove the appetizers out of the way and dive right into God's Word this morning. Is that cool? All right. Awesome. So go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. And as you're doing that, first of all, uh, we've got a Bible in the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take this one home with you. And we are on page 876. But as you're doing that, I wanted to just let you know kind of where we've been. We're going through a series called On Guard. We're, we're looking at the book of Second Peter and talking about how we're told to be ready, to be prepared. And we have these three different icons that we've been using as we've been going through to remind us of three different themes that we see in Second Peter. Chapter 1, we've used a life preserver to remind us. Chapter 1 talks about guarding yourself, guarding your character, guarding your heart. Chapter 2, we use a sword to remind us that chapter 2 is talking about being ready, being prepared for an attack, for battle. And then chapter 3, we're using a trumpet to remind us to guard our hope and our confidence, to point to the second coming of the Lord because He is coming back and to be prepared and ready for that. But like I said, we are in chapter 2. Let's dive in and take a look at our passage this morning. This morning we're looking at Second Peter chapter 2, verses 17 to 22. It says this, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let me pray. Lord... These are your words. This is what we need to hear this morning, whether we know it or not. So God, just strip off the distractions. Help us to lay aside whatever else is running through our mind and help us just devote these next minutes to your word. God, let us uh, focus, let us dial in, and let us be attentive to you. Get me out of the way so that your words ring true this morning. God, we want to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 
I call this nature. Because it gives a telling, memorable picture of the theme of the passage. Let's begin by going back to the second half of verse 19. For I feel that this is the main idea of the passage. It says this, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. This is a common theme in the New Testament, uh, beginning with the words of Jesus. In John 8.34, he says that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. And Jesus is giving the negative example. Hey, if you're practicing sin, if you're overcome by sin, you are a slave to sin. Romans 6.16. Come on, here we go. It's not going fast enough for me. All right. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And Paul gives us kind of the good and the bad in there. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.12, he encourages... All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I don't want to be enslaved. I don't want to be in that state. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. And finally, uh, in our passage, uh, another verse in our passage talks about this same idea. It says, what the true proverb uh, says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. I was uh, helping out in uh, Micah's class at, at kindergarten on Friday. I help out in the computer lab. And uh, these kids are uh, going through these little like math things on the computer, and one of them was clicking on a couple of pigs. And knowing the passage that uh, I was working on, I, I just walked up. And, and they're these cute little pigs, right? And, and so I say, oh, those are some cute little pigs. And she goes, yeah, but pigs are dirty. I'm like, yes, exactly. <laughs> and then I wanted to open up to Second Peter. Now take a look at this. <laughs> but I refrained myself. I, I, I really did. It, it was hard. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the nature of a pig. You can take a pig and you can clean it up and you can scrub it and make it look beautiful. But guess where it's going to go back to? It's in its nature. And though our passage focuses on one nature, I I really wanted to look at both that nature and the nature it alludes to. So the nature of false teachers, uh, which is is the bad nature, which is wallowing in sin, which is wallowing in the mire. But I, I picked this specific image because not only does it have a picture of a pig wallowing in the mire, but next to it is a picture of a tree. And that tree is growing. And it's in that tree's nature to continue to grow, to produce. And so we're going to look both at uh, a bad nature and at good nature. But first, we need to get a little bit of clarity in our passage. Because uh, we have a lot of pronouns. Take a look. 
These, them, they, those, those, they, them, they, themselves, they, they, them, 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 them. A lot of pronouns. And so uh, we're, we're going to go through and, and take a look at all these different pronouns and gain some clarity as to what the they's, the them's, the these, what are all these talking about? Who are these pointing to? And by the way, I eliminated the pronouns that don't really talk about a person. Uh, these are just the ones that talk about uh, people or groups of people. So let's walk through this. Here we go. All right, starting in verse 17, we kick right off with a these. This these... Uh, is pointing back to the rest of the passage uh, where Peter has been talking over and over and over again about false teachers. I colored them in red because red means stop or no or bad. Um, so that's, that's your association right there. So these are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm, talking about the false teachers. For them, again, this is the false teachers, right? The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they, they is, false teachers, yep, uh, enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those, now this is a different group of people, and we get some clarity as to who that is. Uh, it says, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Okay, so those are, uh, now the Greek isn't super clear, but those could very well be new Christians or people about to be Christians, but those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. These are people that are headed in the right direction. Uh, so just for the sake of clarity and argument, we're just going to call them new Christians. Whether they're there or not yet, they're, they're headed in the right direction. Uh, those who are barely escaping from those, now this those, some people say, oh, that's the false teachers. But it's actually not. It's another group of people they are those who live in error. Simply just other people that are living uh, in a manner that God has not called them to. Uh, so it's a third group. I color them in blue. They're not going to come up again um, in this passage. But just to clarify, those are not false teachers. Um, let's continue on. They, we are back to false teachers. They promise them. Them would be, yeah, new Christians. Awesome. Uh, they promised them freedom, but they themselves, again, false teachers, are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Uh, so that phrase, specifically in this passage, is pointing to the false teachers. See, it's following right from the phrase before it. They themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now, for if after they, this they is hotly debated. This is a big discussion, uh, and it really changes the way that you look at the passage, and we're going to dissect how that can change uh, your perception of the passage a little bit more. But I wanted to give you my reasoning for why I would say, is false teachers. Uh, my reasoning is threefold. First of all, uh, you've got in the uh, in verse 19 and verse 20 the word overcome, which in the Greek is the same word. Uh, so 
for whatever overcomes a person, talking about false teachers, to that he is enslaved. Down at the bottom there, again, entangled to them and overcome. So verse 20 looks like it's talking about the same people as verse 19, which are the false teachers. You've also got this uh, phrase right here at the beginning of verse 24, if, uh, connecting the two of them together. So that's reason number two why I would say they is referring to false teachers. Reason number three is this whole section of the letter is talking about false teachers. False teachers, false teachers, false teachers. Oh, by the way, we're going to talk about some other people. No. Peter is continuing on and continuing to say we're talking more about false teachers. I'll give you one more reason why I think that that they points to false teachers later on. Um, But they refers to false teachers. And if you don't buy it, great. You know, I'd love to chat with you more about it. But um, for the sake of this morning, they is referring to false teachers. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they, false teachers again, are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them, false, oops, I'm sorry, I skipped that them. They are again entangled in them. I just wanted to clarify that that them isn't a person, but that them is referring to defilements. They are again entangled in the defilements of the world. And overcome, the last state has become worse for them, false teachers, than the first. For it would have been better for them, false teachers, coming right from the previous phrase, uh, never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them, false teachers. And finally, verse 22, what the true proverb has happened to them, false teachers, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wall in the mire. Whew! That was a lot of grammar. And uh, <laughs> now you know the struggle I deal with every Thursday when I go to Hebrew class. And they're talking about all these parts of grammar that I haven't studied for 15, 20 years. What are you talking about? Um, so, yeah, thank you for suffering with me. But I wanted to take you through that just to, to make some clarity and to point to uh, what this is talking about because it will weigh in heavily uh, to how you view the passage. Little things like that can, can drastically change what God's Word says. And so that's why we need to be careful and we need to be mindful of it. We need to handle it correctly, as we're told um, in 2 Timothy. Uh, to, to know and to be confident that what we're reading not only is true, but accurate. So we're going to now use this to... Uh, get into looking at the nature of false teachers and the nature of true believers. And my heart for you as we look at this is to not only examine those around you to be ready to defend your faith and to be ready to be confident in what you believe, but to also examine yourself and to assess who you truly are. So we're going to begin by looking at the nature of false teachers. Now, I... I know your uh, bulletin says false prophets. There was something going on in my brain that was like locked into, and I kept interchanging those. Uh, it does talk about false prophets at the beginning of the passage, but 
uh, at the beginning of Second Peter, but then after that he uses teachers, teachers, teachers. So I changed mine all to teachers, but I couldn't go and change all your papers. So you can do that and cross out prophets and write teachers if you want to. Um, so nature of false teachers. Uh, in verse 17, uh, it gives us a couple of analogies that uh, you can take a look at in your community group questions. Uh, there's, again, just so much meat in this passage that some I just had to say, here, you tackle this and take a look at it uh, within your groups or, you know, look at it as a family or if you don't uh, look at it in your groups, whatever, you know, but just take a look at these. Um, but the nature of false teachers, I wanted to point out two things that are part of their nature. And the first, uh, we start to see in verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. And I left the color in there for you just to, you know, remind yourself who the they and the those and the these are. Um, and so the first nature of false teachers that I wanted to talk about is it's in their nature to draw others away. It's in their nature to draw others away. We see this in verse 18 when it says, they entice by sensual passions. They're wanting to pull them away. They're wanting to say, come here, come and see this. Hey, did you know that when you, when you come and follow Christ that everything is perfect? And you never have problems anymore and life is good and, and you're going to be a millionaire. Come and follow me. I have the, the right words. I have the right things to say. They draw you in. Oh, man, that sounds good. Or um, maybe it's, you know what? At, at our church, we believe that, that you can come and, and, and believe whatever you want to. Hey, if you're a Buddhist, great. You come and you believe in Buddha and we're going to talk about that. Or you come and you believe in Muhammad, great. Uh, we're going to talk about that more. And, and, and everyone can come and share their thoughts. And, and you don't have to change what you think when you come here. You don't have to surrender anything. You can continue to be who you want and we'll just all talk about it and make each other feel good. Doesn't that sound great? Come, come be a part of our church. They entice by sensual passions. Man, that sounds good. I want to be there. I, I don't want to have to... This book is hard. This book is really hard to live by. I don't want to have to follow this. Man, I can chuck this and believe whatever I want and come to your church. Great. That's enticing. They draw others away. Look at verse 19. They promise them freedom. They're making empty promises. Hey, you can be free from all of these things. You can be free from debt. You can be free from, you know, whatever it is. Pain and suffering. If you just come to our church. If you just come and follow what we're saying. They're making empty promises. Do you see someone in your life that is continually challenging the way you live? That is continually challenging Scripture? Remember what Satan said to Eve? Did God actually say, etc., etc., etc.? Maybe there's someone in your life that's challenging Scripture. Does God really say that? Are you sure about that? And trying to draw you away and pull you away from what you have known to be true. Don't let them in. That's why 
When I get up here, when Dave gets up here, when Gria gets up here, when whoever comes up here, we, we tell you to challenge what we say against Scripture. To check it. Don't just take it at face value. That's why I, I, I gave that to you and I went through the, the pronouns thing, but I said, look, if you believe something else or if you're having a hard time with this, let's talk about it, let's dialogue, let's get into Scripture together. Because don't just take it at face value, but dive into it and look at it. And we got a good topic coming up later this morning. And it's a difficult topic. So I really hope you're evaluating what I'm saying and checking it against Scripture. So it's in the nature of false teachers to draw others away. Let's keep going in verse 19. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. They themselves are slaves of corruption. So it's also in the nature of false teachers to continue to live in sin. It's also in the nature of false teachers to continue to live in sin. They're slaves of corruption. They can't help themselves. They continue to go back to sin. They continue to do it. They continue to live in it. Look here at uh, Romans 6.16. We, we looked at this verse a little bit earlier. We're looking at it again. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. We're going to get back into this passage. We're going to look at it more. But Paul's giving us two options. Either you're a slave to sin or a slave to obedience. And the false teachers are slaves to sin. It's a pattern in their lives. Uh, There's no repentant hearts. They continue to sin and, and, and they don't have a problem with it. Look at verse uh, 20 from our passage. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we'll come back to that part, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. There's, there's a word in here I wanted to draw your attention to. Again. They are again entangled. It's a pattern. It's something that they're continuing to do. And let me just put verse 19 up there and, and reconnect you to this word overcome. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. Uh, and here we see that they, the false teachers, are again entangled in these defilements of the world and overcome. They're overcome. And whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. They are slaves to sin. They continue to live in it. They continue just to go back to it. They can't get out of it. They are enslaved. Now, strap on your boots because we're going to get into a little bit of a challenging portion of this passage. Because these two verses right here, 2 Peter 2, verses 20 and 21, in an isolated or quick read, could very well be pointing to the fact that people here are losing their salvation. 
And just to be clear, we here at NBC believe in the assurance of salvation. It's in our doctrinal statement on our website. Go take a look at it. Uh, but point number eight says, and I'm quoting, we believe that all who receive by faith the Lord Jesus Christ are born of the Holy Spirit and thereby become children of God, a relationship in which they are eternally secure. A relationship in which they are eternally secure. This is part of what we as Neighborhood Bible Church believe. This is part of what sets us apart from a number of other churches. There are a number of churches that, that believe the contrary, that believe that you can come to Christ and then lose your salvation, but we don't. And so I wanted to take a look at this passage and dive into that sticky subject of assurance of salvation. So bear with me. Sure, sure, absolutely. So there are some churches that believe that you can come to Christ and then lose your salvation. Uh, but we as NBC believe that once you come to Christ, once you've surrendered your life to Him, that is a done deal, locked in, you are with Him for all of eternity. Cool? Alright, good. Alright, so I wanted to take a look at just two questions in, in analyzing this, this whole idea of assurance of salvation. Question number one is, does Peter say that these people are saved as we're looking at this passage? And then question number two is, what does people, or what does Peter believe about assurance of salvation? So, so we're just going to focus on Peter and his letters. So first question, does Peter say that they're saved in this passage right here? Now, elsewhere in the Bible, uh, there is very clear language about those who are saved. It says stuff like, they're saved, they're children of God, they're born again, so on and so forth. No such language or phrasing is here. And this is where a clarity on who the they is referring to is important. Right? If they is talking about new believers, then we have a passage talking about believers losing their salvation. For if after they, if after new believers have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, new believers are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for new believers than the first. For it would have been better for new believers never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to new believers. That sounds bad. And that goes against what we believe as Neighborhood Bible Church. And so that's why a very careful analysis of that word they is important. Because if we are talking about false teachers, <coughs> it makes understanding this passage a lot easier. Because we then have people who come in to be part <clears throat> Excuse me. Of a safe, wholesome, encouraging environment, but never commit their lives to the Lord. But they're not there to learn more and then commit their lives to Him. They're there to draw others away and continue to live in sin. Remember the nature of false teachers. False teachers come into churches, come into congregations, come into communities of believers, and are around and in with with other people, but they're not there to surrender their lives to Christ. They're not there to learn more about Him. Rather, they're there to 
draw others away. They're there to continue to live in sin. The Bible talks plenty about these people. Um, let me just give you three verses that you can write down. 2 Timothy 2, 16-18 says, But avoid irreverent battle, babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymnaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Talking about two people in the group, in the congregation that are drawing others away. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. Again, talking about people in the group, in the congregation, but not believers. Not committing their lives to the Lord. Not following after Him. And then the third uh, passage I'd want to just have you write down is Matthew 7.15, which says, Beware of false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They're there in the midst of others. It talks about this over and over in Scripture, about people that come into the midst of our communities and are there to poison, are there to draw people away. And that's exactly what we have in this passage. People that are coming into our communities and drawing others away. This is why Peter says the last state has become worse for them than the first. They had the gospel right in front of them. And instead of receiving it, they rejected it. They ignored it. That wasn't their goal. You knew it. It's right there in front of you and you ignored it? You missed out. So does Peter say that they're saved in this passage? No. Now, I also wanted to point out what does people uh, sorry, what does Peter believe about assurance of salvation? Because maybe, maybe in Peter's other letters, he talked about people losing their faith. Maybe in, in Peter's other letters, he, he was pointing people in a different direction. Well, let me show you. First Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verses 3-5. So this is the letter right before 2 Peter. This is the same guy writing. Look what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you catch it? Imperishable. Undefiled. Unfading. By God's power are being guarded. Can you overcome God's power? No. God is hanging on to each and every one of us. We cannot lose our salvation. Peter couldn't have made it more clear. This is his stance. So if this is Peter's stance, then how can you look at this passage and say, oh, well, I I guess he's changing his mind? Or I guess he's saying something different? No. Rather, there must be a different explanation. 
And this is reason number four why I say that that first they in verse 20 is pointing to false teachers. Pointing to people that are in the midst but aren't of us. They are in the midst of us but only here to, again, draw others away and continue to live in sin. Now, I haven't even gotten into the large number of other passages that talk about our assurance of salvation. And there's a lot of them. I would point you to Romans 8 and just say, man, if you want to dive into this topic more, just go read Romans 8. There's some, there's some good stuff in Romans 8. We survived. All right, good. <laughs> Let's continue on. So again, the nature of false teachers are to draw others away and continue to live in sin. In contrast, I wanted us to look at what a true believer looks like. Take a look at that image on your bulletin again. Again, yes, there's a pig there, but there's also a tree. A tree that's growing. So I wanted to go back and revisit two passages brought up before. Both of these passages talked about uh, both the good nature and the bad nature. So since we already looked at the bad in each passage, I also wanted to look at the passage and just talk about, man, what is the nature of, of true believers? To have some contrast. First of all, the nature of true believers is to bear good fruit. Flip over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at uh, verses 15 to 20. It says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, (coughs) but inwardly are ravenous wolves. (coughs) Excuse me. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or uh, figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So, how can you spot a false teacher? They're living in sin, drawing others away to do the same. So, how do you spot a true believer? They are bearing good fruit. I loved uh, getting to hear from Gria a couple weeks ago. You know how I know he's not a false teacher? Hey, Gria. I'm talking about you. (laughs) I'm deeply involved in his life, and I'm watching him bear good fruit. I see it in his life. A good marker for myself that I try to use from time to time is just to continue to ask myself the question, am I bearing good fruit? Just to continue to check myself in my walk with the Lord, am I bearing good fruit? Am I bearing good fruit? So that's one, one part of the nature of true believers. And here's the second one. I'm excited. Are you excited? True believers are freed 
from sin. Flip over to Romans chapter 6. This is where we're going to hang out for the rest of our time this morning. Romans chapter 6. I'm going to go through and read the whole chapter. And as I do, I, I want you to listen to the concept of baptism, which, oh, thank you. Listen for the concept of bearing good fruit, and also the concept of being freed from sin. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present the members, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal 
life. Ready for the kicker? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please let me get an amen. 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 A few things I wanted to point out. First of all, that free gift, that's not us. So when I say that we're freed from sin, I'm not saying that we have the power to overcome sin on our own. All of a sudden, we have the strength to overcome sin. Rather, Christ gives us the power. This free gift is not from us. This is where we differ from false teachers who continue to live in sin. We have the opportunity to be freed from sin. Look back at verses 11 and 12. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Look at this statement. If Christ is your Lord, you are freed from sin. If Christ is your Lord, you are freed from sin. I want you to turn to somebody near you right now. Look at them and say, if Christ is your Lord, you are freed from sin. I want to end by focusing on this phrase. We have in our passage today false teachers that are promising freedom, but not delivering. For us today, these false teachers can take many forms. First, I want to talk to those in this room who say that Jesus Christ is their Lord. Because many of you aren't living free from sin. I know for me the struggle isn't as much in knowing right from wrong. It's simply remembering that I'm free. See, I, I rationalize it. I talk myself into it. You can't help yourself. You'll be forgiven. Everybody's doing it. It's no big deal. Nobody will know. No. I'm freed from all of that. Shall we continue living in sin that grace may abound? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Brother, sister, stop. Stop listening to the lies. Remember who your Lord is. Remember that you have been set free. Second, I want to talk to those that haven't yet made Jesus Christ Lord of their life. Are you tired of repeating the same mistakes over and over, again and again and again? Aren't you hungry for something different? Do you want to be set free from sin? 
Now, I started with those who have Jesus as their Lord so that you knew it wasn't an easy road ahead. It's a struggle, but it's available for you. As Gria mentioned, we're going to be taking up communion. And for those that haven't yet made Jesus their Lord and are realizing, man, I need him as Lord of my life. Communion can be available for you today if you surrender your life and say, yes, you are my Lord, you are my King. I, I'm sorry for the wrong that I've done. I confess my sin and I make you Lord of my life. But for those that have made Christ Lord of their life, communion is a time of remembering what Christ has done. Remembering the debt that He paid for you and me so that we could be freed from sin. But it's also a time to examine. Look at 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Let me invite the band up as uh, we get ready to take communion. We're going to have the ushers pass out the elements, and as we're singing this song, I want you just to hang on to the bread and to the cup. And use the time to do exactly what this passage says. Use the time to examine yourselves. Use the time to ask yourself the question, am I bearing good fruit? Look at where you're at. Look at how you view sin. If Christ is your Lord... You are freed from sin. Shouldn't be living in it any longer. I realize, yes, we have a, a sin nature that we're born with, that, that wrestles against us, that fights against us, that pulls us in another direction. But as we read in Romans 6, that person is dead. We don't have to live that way any longer. We're freed from sin. Jesus, I, sometimes I run out of words because I'm in such awe of what you've done for me. I know I don't deserve your love. And yet you give it freely. But not only do you give me your love, not only did you take my sins and bear the weight of them on the cross, but you also offered me freedom. And you're the only one that could genuinely do that. You offered me freedom from sin. The opportunity to live life in a new way. A life in a way that you've designed. God, help me to do that.
And when I have my shortcomings, when I fall, when I get sidetracked, God, just smack me upside the head and draw me back to you. Lord, thank you for communion as a way of remembering the sacrifice that you've made. Thank you for the opportunity for us to look at ourselves and examine ourselves. Thank you also for baptism and the opportunity to publicly declare that you are Lord. So God, I pray for those right now that are on the fence about making you Lord of their life. God, I pray that they will see their need for you, their need to surrender their own will and to live after you. And God, I also pray for those that are teetering on the fence about going to this baptism class. For whatever reason they may have that they're nervous about it, God, take that away. Give them the courage to come back. God, we give this time to you. God, just help us to to be really honest with ourselves and to be truly and genuinely honest with you. In Jesus' name, amen.